so let me go directly into the heart of the matter, which is what went wrong in the last decades. Because even most of the left, 30 years ago, they were what I ironically call Fukuyamaists, referring to Francis Fukuyama, uh, believing that the order that we have now, uh, liberal democratic capitalism, is not the best in an abstract sense, but realistically the best possible. So what is going on now? So-called, I don't celebrate it, European civilization, we all know, began with <clears throat> a poem, Homer's Iliad, which this poem opens with a line about rage, wrath. Here is the usual translation. Rage, goddess, think the rage of Peleus' son, Achilles, murderous doomed that cost the Achaeans, Greeks, countless losses. But today, this rage, wrath, fury, has taken a different form. In his interpretation of the fall of East European communism, Jürgen Habermas proved to be the ultimate left Fukuyama, silently accepting that, again, the existing liberal democratic order is the best one possible. And that while we should strive to make it more just, we should not challenge its basic premises. This is why Habermas welcomed precisely what many leftists saw as the big deficiency of the anti-communist protests in Eastern Europe 30 years ago. The fact that these protests were not motivated by any new vision of a post-communist future. As Habermas put it, the Central and Eastern European revolutions were just rectifying all, or catch up the German Dernis Nachkollende revolutions. Their aim being to enable those societies to gain what Western Europeans already possessed. It may look similar in some protests against Russian domination that go on today, even in Ukrainian war. Isn't Ukraine presenting itself as defending? European civilization. However, the ongoing wave of rage of protests in different parts of the world of the world uh, they question this very phrase, the gilet jaune yellow vests in France, Podemos protests in Spain and other similar protests are not just catch-up movements. They embody the weird reversal that characterizes today's global situation. 
the old antagonism between ordinary people and financial capitalist elites is back with a vengeance, with ordinary people erupting in protest against the elites, who the elites are accused of being blind to their suffering and demands. However, what is new is that the populist right has proved to be much more adept in channeling these eruptions in the in each direction than the left. Here then is the paradox we have to confront. The populist disappointment at liberal democracy is the proof that 1990, the fall of communism, was not just a catch-up revolution, that it aimed at more than liberal capitalist normality. Freud spoke about unbehagen in der Kultur, the discontent or unease in culture. Today, 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the ongoing new wave of protests bears witness to a kind of unbehagen, unease in liberal capitalism itself. And the key question is, who will articulate this discontent? Will it be left to nationalist populists to exploit it? The dissatisfaction with the predominant social order expresses itself as paradoxically as a redoubled surplus enjoyment. Not the surplus, not just the surplus enjoyment or surplus value, which sets in motion the capitalist edifice, but a surplus over this surplus itself. The surplus, pulp, surplus excess, palpable in the obscenity of the populist discourse, which is full of racist and sexist enjoyment. We are learning the hard way that the attempt to, the attempt of European modernity to abolish traditional forms of authority and domination, father of the family, political master, and to install secular democracy, more or less is failing. The dimension of the master is returning with a vengeance in all its forms, patriarchal values, political authoritarianism, religious fundamentalism, and so on. So what is going on? Recall the well-known answer. It's an old joke, but I think it's very profound. The well-known answer of the members of an Aboriginal tribe to a white explorer who visits them for the, for the first time and asks them, are there still cannibals among you? Are you a cannibal tribe? The answer he gets is, no, we are not cannibals. We ate, last week we ate the last cannibal. 
what's the lesson of this joke? If a civilized, non-cannibal community is constituted by its members eating the last cannibal, that community could never be constituted if that last act of cannibalism is labeled as sex, as a criminal act. So between so-called barbarism and the rule of law, civilization, we need a moment which should become invisible. A moment of, let's call it, sacred violence when people or their leaders eat the last cannibal. You know where you can see this same paradox at work very clearly? In the United States, in the passage from barbarism to modern legal order in the so-called Wild West, as we know it from Western films. This passage was accomplished through brutal crimes, through eating the last cannibals, and legends were invented to obfuscate these crimes. This is what John Ford, the biggest Western movie director, uh, indicated in his famous line, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Legend becomes fact, not in the simple sense of factual truth, but in the sense that it becomes an immanent constituent of the actually existing order. So that rejecting it amounts to the disintegration of this order. But today, something strange and new is happening with the rise of contemporary practices like what our governments call enhanced interrogation techniques, which means torture, of course. Modern illegal state violence, or more generally, illegal or extra-legal practices supported and enabled by the legally existing apparatuses of power could be seen as acts repeating the illegal, mythic, prehistorical constitution of state power. The eating of the last cannibal is repeated again and again. And Julian Assange, I think, is something like our Antigone from Sophocles' play. He is for a long time kept in the position of a living death, isolated in a solitary cell with very limited contact with his family and lawyers, with no conviction or even official accusation, just waiting for the extradition. Because he made public the obscene dark side of the United States policy. He didn't just inform the secret services of the opposite side. He was, as he characterized himself, a spy of and for the people. That's why a species of leaders is emerging now who take pride in committing this crime, the crime of eating the last cannibal, openly 
rather than secretly, as if it amounted to some kind of fundamental moral difference or difference of character. Namely, you know, all brutal dictators or even not full dictators like Donald Trump, they claim I have the courage, the guts to do it openly, to violate parts of the law. But what may appear to be their courageous transgression of state laws by avoiding the hypocrisy that those laws sometimes demand is nothing more than a direct identification with the obscene other side of state power itself. They, the new leaders, are openly transgressing their own laws. This is why, even when they are in power, these leaders continue to act as if they are in opposition, rebelling against the real power. You know, Trump always claimed, the deep state is against me. An example. Uh, are you aware what does it mean? Namely, what Trump now recently on, uh, on the 3rd of December, uh, what he said, he called for the termination of the American Constitution to overturn the 2020 election result and reinstate him to power. Here is a literal quote from Donald Trump. Do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner, or do you have a new election? A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules regulations and articles, even those found in the Constitution. So Trump is consciously undermining the very fundamentals of the existing legal order, including the Constitution. He openly says we have to eat the last cannibal uh, again. Of course, Putin is doing many similar Things. However, in Russia and some other states, something quite different and maybe even darker is happening simultaneously. They are bringing back one of the features of Stalinism. Stalinism also was continuing to eat the last cannibal. But under Stalinism, they mostly did not do it discreetly. They did it openly. Their legal system, which regulated constant political purges, literally millions disappeared. Their legal system regulated how we should permanently eating the last cannibal, those who are the threat to our system. And what happens now, it is again that Russia is elevating, eating the last cannibal into a law. Something weird, very weird, happened now, 10 days ago, even less, on Wednesday, December 15th, the Russian Duma parliament adopted the first reading of a law saying that any 
criminal offenses committed in the occupied regions of Ukraine, I quote, will not be considered a crime punishable by law if they can be considered to have been in the interest of the Russian Federation. Okay, it's not clear how it would be decided whether a crime had served Russia's interests. You know that the Russian armed forces did quite a lot of crimes there. Torture, rape, murder, looting, vandalism. But again, are we aware what is going here? That the state is... Uh, the state is directly legalizing the violation of its own laws if they serve of legalization of crimes if they serve patriotic interests. So what is going on here? Uh, uh, I would like to begin with a linguistic distinction. It will be probably difficult to translate it into even into English. I don't know about Korean, your language, if you have different words for it, but in French and some other languages, we have two words for the future. Future, like future, and avenir, avenir, to come. Future stands for the future as the continuation of the present, as the full actualization of tendencies which are already present, while avenir, avenir, to come, avenir, points towards a more radical break, a discontinuity with the present. Avenir is what is to come, not just what will be. For example, in the contemporary apocalyptic situation, the ultimate horizon of the future, future is what? Our best theorist of catastrophes, I think. Jean-Pierre Dupuy, D-U-P-U-Y. Uh, uh, he called this ultimate horizon the dystopian fixed point. The zero point of ecological breakdown or nuclear war or global economic or social chaos. Even if it never arise, arises, this zero point is something like a virtual attractor towards which our reality left to itself tends. The way to combat the future catastrophe is through acts which interrupt this drifting towards the dystopian fixed point. Dupuy's uh, thesis is here that it's a, please listen now carefully, it's a very profound theoretical one, that if we are to confront properly the threat of catastrophes, uh, environmental, nuclear war, and so on, we need to break out of the usual notion of literal 
of uh, sorry of linear time where the future is mostly determined by the past but we have sometimes these four choices to make dupuy calls what the new time notion the time of a project of of a closed circuit between the past and the future the future is causally produced by our acts in the past that's true while the way we act is determined by our anticipation on the future and our reactions to this anticipation you, you see the very simple point it's not just that what we do is produced by the past at the same time we have certain expectations of the future and reacting to these expectations we act the way we do this then is how dupuy proposes to confront the catastrophe we should first perceive it as our fate as unavoidable so we should uh, only then afterwards project ourselves into this catastrophe adopting its standpoint and then we should retroactively insert into our past counterfactual possibilities in the sense of oh my god if we were to do that and that the catastrophe we are in now would not have happened therein resides dupuy's paradoxical formula we have to accept that at the level of possibilities the future is doomed the catastrophe will take place it is our destiny and then on the background of accepting this fact we should mobilize ourselves to perform acts which will change destiny itself which will insert new possibilities into the past so this does not mean that we cannot change the future it just means that in order to change our future we should first change our past not in a naive magical way of changing what happened but we should reinterpret the past in such a way that opens up towards a different future future different from the one implied by the predominant vision of the past now here the example would have been uh, what uh, uh, what uh, uh, you sean uh, young uh, mentioned that uh, early act of revolution in 1949 or when yours you should tear it out of its predominant reading it was just a small communist rebellion directed by north korea whatever and you should read it as something that is not yet dead that still has a message to deliver to us pointing towards a different future today we should ask ourselves will there be a new world war the answer can only be a paradoxical one if there will be a new war it will be a necessary one this is how history works again a quote from dupuy if an outstanding event takes place 
a catastrophe, for example, it could not, not have taken place. Nonetheless, insofar as it did not take place, it is not inevitable. It is thus, that's the formula, if you are philosophers, it is thus the event's actualization, the fact that it takes place, which retroactively creates its necessity, end of quote. With regard to the new global war, once the conflict will, if it will, let's hope not, will explode between United States and Iran, between China and Taiwan, between Russia and NATO, around Ukraine, it will appear necessary. That is to say, we will automatically read the past that led to it as a series of causes that necessarily brought out the explosion. If it will not happen, we will read it the way we today read the Cold War, as a series of dangerous moments where the catastrophe was avoided because both sides were aware of the deadly consequences of a global uh, conflict. So again, I repeat my point. It's not enough to say we are in a certain situation and the possibilities are open. We can choose war, we can choose peace or a third possibility. No, what we are confronting are not just different possibilities, but literally different futures. Dupuy uses here, he borrows from quantum mechanics, the term superposition, superposition of states. Today, we live in a superposition, political, of different states. If you look at our history, not just the Ukrainian war, but our entire situation, all signs point towards a mega catastrophe. Ecology is our gradual suicide. There will be hunger because of global warming. Uh, 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 tens, hundreds of million people will have to move around. There is, there is a clear prospect of nuclear catastrophe. So this is the fixed point towards which we are moving. It's more than just a possibility. If you look neutrally at our situation, this is our future. In this sense, necessary. But we, knowing this, we can act. We can act against it. So what to do in this confused situation? The first obvious answer is that why to have authorities which rule instead of us at all? Why shouldn't people themselves reign? But what do you mean by this? What do we mean by this? In today's populism, the dark, obscene side of the reference to the people also made itself palpable. The people to which populism refers, I think, doesn't exist. Populism is by definition a mask of power. It is a fantasized entity evoked by the new masters to justify their role as the servants of the people. 
enabling them to dismiss their opponents as the enemies of the people. Did you notice that all from the early modernity on, all leaders since from modernity on, you cannot any longer rely unproblematically on some transcendent source of authority. I'm a king because uh, God invested in me my authority or because some higher destiny, my sacred origins legitimize it. So the logical solution is that leaders themselves, masters, proclaim themselves servants. Like Friedrich the Great, the famous German Prussian king, proclaimed himself the servant of state. And there are, of course, different modalities of this position of serving the servants. From technocracy, experts who say we just serve society, we don't have any interest, to religious fundamentalism, to a new figure, obscene masters, clowns, like Donald Trump. The obscene master is not a direct reaction to the failure of the traditional master. This figure is a reaction to the fact that expert knowledge, pure technocracy, cannot properly function. It has to be supplemented by the new figure of a master. Now, how should we react to this situation? The first, now I will try to be as short as possible. The first version is, it's the most tragic version for me, it's cynicism. It's that we reluctantly accept the need to return to some form of social authority, but we say, just act as if you accept it. Pretend that you accept it. Play the game. Don't accept it seriously. For example, Lacan's nephew and follower, Jacqueline Miller, preaches this view. He says, Literally quoting, I don't think he's aware, Franz Kafka from his novel, The Trial. The law is not true, it's arbitrary. But it is necessary. So you know it's not true, but you have to accept it as necessary. You should just not, again, you should acquire a distance towards it. This cynical view, I think, uh, fits perfectly today's society, where in our postmodern relativism, nobody really, I think that even religious fundamentalists, they don't really believe in their eternal values, blah, blah. They just cynically act as if they do. The next solution is let's drop the figure of the master itself and uh, opt for anarchism. I take this seriously. Anarchism is having a revival today, from Noam Chomsky to David Graeber. Anarchism is not against public power. Catherine Malabou, a very good Hegelian philosopher, 
and another neo-anarchist, refers to Jacques Rancière, who asserts radical equality between citizens who are considered able to both command and obey. This is the basic premise of anarchism, which is also in some sense the basic premise of democracy. There are no people who are a priori legitimized by their expertise, authority whatsoever to rule. Every common person, okay, with some exceptions, if you are mentally ill, blah, blah, every human person is able of participating also in government. But in her, in his reply to Catherine Malabou, Etienne Balibar goes to the crux of the problem. A quote, the anarchist will say that we are able to imagine and realize in practice now an alternate social fabric because the whole society could one way or another emerge from forms of self-government and self-organization that can be experienced and experimented with at the level of cooperatives. <clears throat> and I finished the quote just on uh, uh, those who claim this usually re refer to like Kurdish fighters in Rojava, Zapatistas in Chiapas, and so on. The problematic point is, can these local anarchist communities, can they be universalized into a global power? Uh, Malabu herself points out two problems. First, anarchism is becoming today a key feature of global capitalism itself. A quote from Malabu again. Our current epoch is characterized by a coexistence between a de facto anarchism and a dawning or awakening anarchism. De facto anarchism is the reign of anarcho-capitalism, which is contemporaneous with the end of the welfare state, creating in citizens a feeling of abandonment. Just think of the state of hospitals and healthcare today. So, current capitalism is undertaking its anarchist turn, a generalized uberization of life. Uber, she means these new companies, which are not even capitalists in the old sense. They just claim we mediate between what workers offer on the market, car owners and their customers. Uh, but Malabu, as a good Hegelian, noticed also something else, that this anarcho-capitalism is the other side of a new authoritarianism. The last quote from her, Authoritarianism does not contradict the disappearance of the state. It is its messenger. The mask of this so-called collaborative economy, which by bringing professionals and users into direct contact through technological platforms, pulverizes all fixity, end of quote. What this means is that the rising authoritarianism is the other side of the disappearance of the state. More precisely, of the most precious function of the state, 
that of providing public services. We thereby touch the vast domain of public services, healthcare, education, which cannot be provided through expanding cooperatives and other forms of local self-organization. As Etienne Balibar emphasizes, for average American workers, the problem is not too much state. The problem is not enough state. What we need today more than ever is what a German friend of mine, conservative philosopher, but very intelligent, Peter Sloterdijk, what he calls objective social democracy. Social democracy, which is not a political force, one among the parties, but a social democracy, which is already part of the state apparatus embodied in it. For example, in a country like Nordic countries, up to a point Germany, France, uh, global healthcare, free education, and so on, uh, they, they are not a, a matter of political choice. They are accepted as the basic constituent of social life. So whoever is in power through free, so-called free elections, he doesn't dare to touch this. Uh, here, I will, I, uh, I will just add two things, maybe problematic to some of you. So the problem today is uh, that we do live in a society of choice. But the problem is not that these choices are false choices. You know, the fundamental paradox of state authority. You are given a free choice on condition that you make the right choice. No, today, like when you use Uber or whatever, you are bombarded by or demanded to make massive choices, but without being qualified to make properly these choices. I will quote here, uh, not a friend of mine, but my, he really hates it, severe critic, John Gray. But he was right when he wrote this, quote, we have been thrown into a time in which everything is provisional. New technologies alter our lives daily. The traditions of the past cannot be retrieved. At the same time, we have little idea of what the future will bring. We are forced to live as if we were free. And to <clears throat> conclude, to provoke you, my solution is we cannot get rid of simply of the figure of the master. Why not? Because when you, when, when you say not master, but free individuals, but these free individuals who experience maybe even themselves as free, what is more free today than surf the web, you make all the choices you want. Their freedom is already regulated without you even being aware of it. And to become aware of how false your freedom is, you need a figure of a master, a leader. Let's be careful here. Not the traditional leader who pretends to know better than you what is good for you. No, 
you, we need new leaders whose simple message is you can. You are not caught into your determined circumstances. You have a fundamental choice. You can do it. Obama used this, yes, we can. Later, he disappointed us, we know. But this was an authentic moment in his first electoral campaign, I think, Barack Obama, when his message was just, yes, we can. That's the leader. And that's also why my final philosophical point, we cannot simply renounce in certain situations, acting like masters, assuming authority, when the situation condemns us to do it. I will not quote it again. I refer here to Hannah Arendt's beautiful short text on education, where she says, let's say you are now head of an impoverished family, your small children are totally confused, they don't know what is going on, what should they do, should we... Uh, uh, and they ask their parents, father, mother, please give us some orientation. The literally truthful and honest thing would have been for father or mother or another authority, yeah, that's true. I forgot where it is taken. Thanks, Russia. To say, uh, listen, we are confused as you. Today's situation is chaotic. We don't know. You just have to find your way. No. You, although we are not justified to claim authority, we have heroically to assume it. We have to heroically act as if we have authority. You know, it's the same thing as, to conclude with a philosophical point, it's the same thing as, let's say, I am a cognitive scientist, and I'm not, but I follow the debates there. And many of them claim our human freedom is a user's illusion. Everything is already decided in advance at the level of neurobiological processes and so on. So, uh, Let's say, sorry for this stupid example. Let's say I see in a pool near my house a small girl slowly drowning. She cannot swim. And then the logical formulation would have been for me a consequence to say, I don't have freedom of my will, so why should I worry? Whatever I will do is predetermined. I shouldn't be held responsible. No, you are. Even if cognitively you know, but I don't believe this theory, that you don't have free will, you should act as if you have a free will. That's the paradox today. We need not leaders who know better than us. We need experts, but not as leaders. We need leaders who give us back our freedom, not the vulgar everyday freedom of will I go to this movie theater or to another, but this basic freedom of changing the coordinates of our life. If we don't regain this freedom, then we are lost.